following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Believing you may have life in his name. The story of uh, Thomas the Skeptic um, illustrates for us really how difficult a thing faith is. Um, and, and one of the questions that people wrestle with, theologians, philosophers, maybe you've wrestled with this, is, is the problem of um, can, can you simply decide or choose to believe something? In other words, can you will faith? Can you decide, well, Christianity sounds reasonable. I want to believe that. And just by a matter of your decision, you can inherit or own a faith that's adequate. Um, how is it that we come to accept and really believe with conviction that something is true, especially something that is, by definition, unbelievable, that, is, that it seems impossible? Like, for example, the resurrection, right? That people could, be, uh, could come back to life from the dead. Uh, how is that possible? Uh, Thomas said in this, in this account that he could not believe, could not believe, in the resurrection without some kind of proof, right? He needed evidence. He said, I want, to, I want to actually put my finger in the hole in Jesus' hand. And I want to put my hand in the gash in his side, right? I want that kind of hands-on, physical, tangible evidence. Then I can believe. And, of course, uh, in this account we see that Jesus grants his wish, right? Jesus does show up. He does appear to... Thomas, and he gives him the kind of proof um, that he was asking for. Um, but what about us, right? Um, I remember as a boy when I was probably about uh, 13 years old, wanting desperately to believe in the Bible and in God. And I remember lying in bed one night, very depressed, very uh, in turmoil in my soul at that young age, and uh, wrestling with this whole notion of Christianity and I wanted to believe it's true, and I remember crying out to God saying, God, I want to believe you, but I need some help here. I said, all I need is just a quick glimpse. Like, if you could just kind of blow through my room, just give me one three-second vision, I would be good, and I'll believe you forever. And I prayed with deep conviction and belief and faith that God could do that for me. And you know what happened? Nothing. (laughs) Just darkness, right? No vision, no anything. I believe God actually did answer that prayer. It just was a lot slower than what I expected, not, not quite in the way I anticipated. Right? Um, so how does it work for us? Is our faith just some blind leap in the dark? That, well, like, maybe it's true. I'll just believe in it. Right? Is that how it really works? Um, well, if you're like me and you are by nature a skeptic, right, faith will be hard for you. But like Thomas, not impossible. Right? And in fact, I think uh, what I hope we will see is that, uh, that the faith of a skeptic is actually some of the most pure and real faith of anybody. Right? The faith of a skeptic is the more, most pure and real of any faith. And we'll see that in the life of Thomas uh, by the time we get to the end. And he, he helps us understand really the true nature of faith and what, what is required for us to possess a faith that is adequate, that's genuine and real enough to really 
change our life, to really bring us salvation, to um, alter the course of our history, if you will. So let's look at this and uh, the story. And I want to look really at two, two main things. First of all, the process of faith and see how for, for Thomas, he goes down this journey, this process where faith develops for him and how that happens. Because I think it's something that is, will be true for most of us. It's, it's a process. It's not just an instant. And so we want to look at that process. And then we'll look at uh, how we can be pursuing faith in our own life. So first of all, the process of faith. Um, it starts off with, with what I would call a faith challenge. And we see this uh, first step with, with, with Thomas. Um, first thing that he encountered was a, was a deep challenge to his understanding of the way the world works. Right? He was confronted with ideas that were radical and revolutionary to him. Namely, that a dead guy who'd been dead for three years could be up walking around totally alive. Right? That, was, that was what challenged his concept of reality. Reading again in verse 24, it says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. <laughs> Sad day for him, right? Jesus appeared. Thomas missed it. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He's risen. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the clear proof, right, the nail marks in his hands, unless I touch them, put my hand in his side, I will never believe. Um, it was a challenge for him to believe in the resurrection because this was not a daily occurrence or event, right? People just weren't rising from the dead all the time. Now, now the, the reality is that they had actually seen this happen only uh, a short time before this, a matter of weeks, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus' resurrection was different in that there was no miracle worker, right? There was no Messiah standing at the tomb calling somebody out. He just did it all on his own. And for, for Thomas, that was too much, right? It's not possible. How could Jesus just, on his own, apparently, come back to life? Right? There was no category or explanation for that. Uh, and the problem was not, I don't think that Thomas didn't believe his friends saw something. I don't think he doubted. I don't think he thought his friends had been, like, smoking, had been in Colorado and were smoking legal substances there, right? I think he believed that they really saw something, but he questioned what it was that they saw, right? Uh, because it could have been a spirit, could have been a ghost, it could have been a, a vision. And, and if, if you believe in the Old Testament, which all the disciples did, throughout the Old Testament, God was appearing to people in what's called theophanies. He would show up often to many characters in the Old Testament, but it wasn't bodily, right? It was, it was an image, it was a vision, it was... Some, some way that God appeared, but it was not human existence. And so he had lots of reasons to question, not that they saw something, but what, that, that what they saw was the, the body, the resurrected, physical, real body of Jesus. And so that's why he asked for these specific evidence. He says, if it's really the body of Jesus and not some ghost or some vision, then I will be able to physically touch it. And not only that, but I'll be able to physically touch the evidence of his crucifixion. So, so that's what he's looking for. Not, not that they saw something, not that Jesus wasn't you know, living in heaven, but that his body had been resurrected. And the reality is that for, for none of us, really, faith cannot begin to develop unless our ideas about reality are challenged with new possibilities. Um, 
So, so for example, somebody who's grown up in a world uh, full of science and naturalism, who's been told all their life that the only thing that's real is what you can prove scientifically. Nothing can exist beyond what we can touch, taste, feel, and see and hear. For that person, uh, the idea of a creator God who is transcendent, who's outside of the created order, who's beyond physics and the physical realm of the universe, that challenges us a new category for them that, uh, that will challenge their, their thinking. Um, uh, same way maybe for a Buddhist who, who believes in a never-ending cycle of life, and they've never heard this notion of a creator God who made it all. But it's a new category. It challenges their view of reality. Uh, for me, it was easy to believe in a God who created everything. I grew up in a Christian home, and I'd heard stories about creation since before I could speak. Uh, so that was easy for me. But what was hard for me was to believe that this creator God could be a loving God. I thought, how could God possibly love a creep like me? Because I hated myself when I was a kid, and I knew I was a troublemaker. And um, I thought, why would... Why would God love somebody like me, right? That challenged my worldview. And, uh, and that's exactly what happens to Thomas, right? He is confronted with some view of reality that he's never imagined before. And it, it's, it's the beginning of faith. And it's much like a, a seed, as Jesus said, a seed that gets planted in the soil, right? That idea, that kernel of truth gets planted in, in a heart and in a mind. And initially, Thomas is, is struggling with it. But given time, given the right soil conditions and, and water, it can grow and bear fruit. Now, what, it, what, what the experience for Thomas was was not a seed. What the experience for him was much more like a storm that had just blown into his soul and was wreaking havoc like a tornado in his life. Right? For eight days, he is in turmoil as this idea and possibility of resurrection just boils in him. Right? And everything in him says, no, this is absolutely not possible. But there's a, a glimmer, a door, a crack that's opened, a seed that is planted that begins him thinking. Uh, but, of course, it's got to move, move past that. And so eight days go, go by. And uh, they're in the upper room again. They've locked the door because they're still afraid of the Jews. And um, he's going to get step two. And step two is that faith requires evidence. Okay, Faith requires evidence. Now, for some of you, this is going to be kind of a hard concept because you've been told all of your life that faith is the opposite of evidence. right? That somehow, you know, faith is something you can't prove. Well, I'm going to uh, show from Scripture today that that's absolutely not true. Okay? In fact, real faith requires evidence. Now, um, it is possible for some people, maybe a lot of people actually, to believe in something just because they want it to be true. Okay? My wife is like an extreme optimist on steroids. Right? And if she wants something to be true, it's true no matter what, just because she wants it to be. And so I don't argue with her about those things, right? Uh, there, there is that kind of faith. So, so for example, children believe in Santa Claus because they want to believe in Santa Claus, right? Uh, some Christians may believe in Jesus because they want Jesus to be true. They want the Bible to be true. And for them, that's enough. 
The problem with this kind of faith, though, is that it is usually not strong enough to weather the storms of doubt very well. And, even more importantly, it has no answer to those who question it. It has no answer. So if you're a believer, and the only reason you believe in Jesus is because you want it to be true, and a skeptic like Thomas comes up and he starts asking you about your faith, and you say, well, I just believe it because I want to believe it, okay? They're, they're going to think you just, you're crazy, right? They're going to think you're crazy because that's not sufficient for many people. Um, how many of us, and, and the, the, the bigger problem, the problem is that when, when those kind of questions come, oftentimes an untested faith, and a faith that is built only on wishes, cannot stand. And the reality is uh, so, so many families see their their, their kids grow up in a Christian home and they send them off to college and they crash and burn in their faith. They cannot stand because their whole faith was only built on a wish, not on solid evidence, on nothing substantial. Right? None of us want that for our kids. Uh, how many of us still believe in Santa Claus? Anybody? Nobody's going to admit to that one, right? Um, now, I want him still to be real, right? It would save me a boatload of money. I want him to be real. But guess what? There's no substance to that belief, so we've all abandoned that one. You see, faith requires more than just a blind leap into a wish. Uh, now, if you've read this passage and you know this passage, you're going to say, hey, wait, wait, hold on, Pastor Tim. I got this, you know. Verse 29 says, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Ha! <laughs> there you go. See, faith should be without evidence, right? Blessed is the one who does not see and believes. Well, we'll see uh, later on why I believe that this saying of Jesus is greatly misunderstood. And Jesus is not saying here, that faith is without any kind of evidence or proof. And uh, we'll see that in a minute. Um, so, so here's the thing. Being confronted, Thomas is confronted with this new reality, the possibility of a resurrection. Uh, it begins to challenge his thinking. But in order for it to really go anywhere, there must be some evidence that this new reality is, actual, is an actual possibility. Um, and here's the thing. When you read through every gospel account, every single gospel account of the resurrection, every person in the story, okay, every person who shows up at the empty tomb and to whom Jesus appears, every single one of them, uh, believed because of evidence. Right? Uh, there, there's not a single person who just started believing because they felt like it. Right? Now, if you can find that person, please show me afterwards. I would love to see the account where it says, I don't know why, but I just felt like believing Jesus rose again. I didn't actually need to see him. Right? you re remember reading that anywhere in the Gospels? I've never seen that one, right? None of them said that. In fact, it took incredible convincing for all of them, even when they saw Jesus. Right? Even in the face of Jesus, they were having a difficult, difficult time believing it was him. Right? None of them were just going, well, sure, I believe. Jesus said he would rise again, and so 
I'm just going to take it, his word at face value. None of them did that. Every person in the story is confronted with various forms of evidence, oftentimes multiple pieces of evidence. The empty tomb, the vacated grave clothes, the two angels sitting there saying, he's risen. And ultimately, for every single one of them, an appearance by Jesus himself. Pretty significant evidence, right? Jesus does not hearsay. All of them see the resurrected living Jesus. That's pretty significant proof and evidence that it's real. Now, it is possible, it is possible for us to believe something just because somebody uh, says so, right? Uh, and the more gullible you are, the more likely you, you are to do this, right? That's kind of the definition of gullibility. We believe it just because they said so. And, and this actually works because, uh, first of all, we find the person saying it as credible. We believe them. And secondly, because what they are saying is sensible. And this is really what makes April Fool's Day work, right? Anybody get suckered by somebody this year on April Fool's, right? They, we, this happens to us all the time. People get me all the time. Why? Because I believe people. Because what they say, say makes sense. So sisters call each other and say on April 1st, guess what? I'm pregnant. No. No, April Fool's, right? Because we believe what people say, right? Uh, now, that works to a certain point. Now, if, if your sisters are 60, it becomes a lot harder to believe, right? Because it's not possible anymore, right? So, so here's the thing. Telling someone that a dead guy is now walking around fully alive is, is just not sensible. So even though Jesus said it, it is so off the charts that uh, no matter how trustworthy the person is, you're just not going to believe it without evidence. There must be some kind of proof that makes this unbelievable thing believable. And, and, and God provides that. Jesus provides that for every, every person in the resurrection account. Uh, Thomas is not, is not in any way unique from the others because he wanted proof. Okay, Thomas is not unique because he asked for proof. What's unique about Thomas is that he was absent when the proof was given, right? Wrong day to stay home sick. Okay, that's, that's, that's the only difference with Thomas. He wasn't, day, he wasn't in class on that day when they had the, the cool show and tell with Jesus, right? Um, so, 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 so know that. Know that, right? And, and I hope I've convinced you of that. Uh, there is no such thing as a faith, as a solid, substantial faith based on nothing. Right? It's got to be based on substantial evidence or proof, something that substantiates our reason to believe in it. Next thing, number three, evidence requires faith. <laughs> evidence requires faith. Uh, evidence by itself means nothing if the person viewing the evidence is unwilling to consider it as valid. Right? And, and we, all, we all know how this works. Um, if it was just a matter of providing sufficient evidence to Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, then evangelism would be easy. It would just be going out with our little PowerPoint, you know, dump on them a boatload of, in, of evidence, poof, they'd become a Christian. Right? It would be easy. But we all know that it does not work that way. 
And, and if you've ever had this experience, which I've had many times, trying to argue somebody into the kingdom, right? I'm going to argue and I'm going to convince them. I'm going to prove to them that I'm right and they're wrong. And that just doesn't work. Why? Because they don't believe my evidence, right? The evidence in itself requires faith. And the reality is that you can reject even the most compelling evidence about anything. The most compelling evidence about anything, right? And that's why we have all today all these great conspiracy theories about this, that, and that thing. Because people, you know, it's, it's so easy to reject clear evidence. Like the famous saying, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. Right? Um, so it says in verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What's significant about this is that even though Jesus was not physically present when, when Thomas had said these things, Jesus knew exactly what he said. So right off the bat, before, before Thomas even gets a chance to examine the evidence, a new piece of evidence has surfaced for him that Jesus is everywhere listening. Jesus heard and Jesus knows his doubt. Jesus knows what's going on in his heart. Um, and at that point, Thomas could have said, I'm just not going to believe it. With Jesus standing before my eyes, I've already made up my mind. But of course, he doesn't do that. He considers the evidence standing before him. Um, unfortunately, too many people in the modern world um, are unwilling to even look at the evidence. Right? They're un unwilling to even consider the weight of, of truth in the Bible that supports everything that, that, uh, that we believe. And the cool thing is, if you examine, you can t rip apart Scripture, it, it stands the test. Right? It's been scrutinized for 2,000 years. People have tried to unravel it. They've tried to undermine it. They've tried to prove it wrong. Over and over and over again, their efforts have failed. Right? Scripture stands. Right? Does it mean that, they're, that, again, that everybody believes it? No. Of course, you can reject it. If that's your agenda and your determination... Sure, you can believe or not believe anything you want. But for those who will honestly consider the evidence, who will have faith to at least consider what's written, right? it's the next step in the journey of faith. The last thing of all, last in the, in the four steps, last step is this. Faith opens new horizons. Uh, of course, Thomas sees Jesus. He hears him speak, you know, these omniscient, all-knowing words, uh, reading Thomas's mind and thoughts, um, giving him the evidence. And, and Thomas, he, he, he sees the evidence. He sees the scars. Uh, we don't know that he actually touched, but it was there. Maybe he did. Maybe he, he put his finger in the scar and he put his hand in the side. Um, the evidence was sufficient and Thomas answered in verse 28, My Lord and my God. Uh, with the living Jesus standing before him, he had all the proof that indeed it was not a vision or a ghost. It was the actual 
bodily resurrection of Jesus, alive and in the flesh. Right? He's not a ghost. Um, and and he, he, he declares his faith. But I don't think he does it like this. I don't think he says, okay, this all seems to be rather reasonable, a reasonable explanation of things. So now I think I will choose to believe it's true. Okay, just, just as, you know, here's, here's one of the things. I don't think faith works by choice. In fact, I think so convincing was the evidence. I think so overwhelming was this Jesus standing before him, flesh and blood and scars and all, speaking to him, his own thoughts. So convincing was that evidence that uh, Thomas could not help but believe. He had no choice in the matter at this point. There's no way at this point Thomas could say, nah, you know, it's pretty good evidence, but no, I think I'll choose not to believe. I don't think it was possible for him. Right? He couldn't help but believe Jesus resurrected standing before him. And you see, that really is what real faith is about. Faith is not just a decision or choice to, to want to believe something. It is a conviction so deep and certain that we simply cannot believe otherwise. We are convinced that this is truth, absolute truth. And it changes our life because all of a sudden we now have a whole new reality. And what's amazing about this is uh, that for Thomas, this, this faith opens his eyes and he now accepts fully, believes fully that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, he, and it launches him into this new possibility, this new reality. But not only that, it actually, it actually launches him even beyond that, even beyond into a whole new realm. He far beyond what he even originally thought about or questioned. You see, here's the thing. The disciples all believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now they believe that Jesus was the Messiah who had risen from, died on the cross and had rose from the dead. But uh, none of the disciples yet actually made the, the clear, definitive declaration that Jesus was the Messiah who died, who rose again, and was God. Right? This is a whole new category. And all along, uh, it was clear that the disciples failed to understand what Jesus meant by Messiah, what he meant by who he was. Uh, and so Thomas not only gets the resurrection, but now he gets, it, he gets a, whole new, a whole new thing. Jesus not only rose from the dead, but if that's true then he is not just human like us. He is God. Right? My Lord and my God. Okay? Um, it's kind of like, you know, I, I love to climb mountains. I love to be on high mountains. Uh, because when you get up there, you get this amazing view. Except for in Thailand where there's trees. <laughs> and the view is the same at the top as at the bottom. But like in Colorado where I live... Um, you get to the top of a mountain, you can see like forever. You get real high mountain, you see a long, long ways. Uh, this, this last summer, we were in Colorado visiting some of our friends, and they have this house that sits on this hill looking at Mount Evans, which is this 14,000-foot mountain just right out their door. And it's this just huge mountain, and it's so close from their house, it feels like you could just reach out and touch it. And we were sitting there one evening watching the sunset, just admiring the view, 
And we said, hey, you know what would be really fun? Let's get up really early in the morning and drive. Thankfully, you can drive to the top of this mountain. Drive up there and watch the sun rise. So that's what we did. We got up at like some crazy, ridiculous 3.30 in the morning. And we drove a long drive to get to the top of this mountain and got there just as the sun was rising. And it was, it was really cool, spectacular. And if the, if the view of the mountain was impressive, what was startling is when you get on top, the view from the mountain is a thousand times more impressive. And when we were sitting at their house, we thought, you know, the mountain is just right there. You can just touch it. Surely, when we get up on the mountain, we'll be able to see their house. So we get up on top, and, you know, it was crazy. Not only could you not see their house, but you couldn't even see the whole mountain that their house sits on. Because why? Because the landscape before us was so incredibly vast. Right? You could see for, you know, dozens and dozens of miles in all directions, right? And their house that seems so close, you realize, is, is, is far away. It's this tiny speck that you can't even see. Well, that's kind of what happened to Thomas. He climbed by faith. He climbed to the top of this mountain called Resurrection. When he got up there, he had this amazing landscape of Jesus' life. And he realized Jesus' life wasn't that tiny little speck that he once thought it was. Right? It is this vast landscape. Uh, it is, it is the life of God incarnate. Um, he sees the infinite reality, infinitely glorious reality of who Jesus really is as he stands on that mountain of faith. And what's amazing is, even though he was the last to come to faith, slow in the process, what he saw when he got there... Um, it would, be, it would be a while before the other disciples actually caught up with his view of Jesus. Right? So that's the journey of faith, as it happened for uh, Thomas. And I think, really, as it happened for all the disciples. Right? They were all confronted with this reality of the resurrection that they could not believe. Uh, they were all given clear, tangible, specific evidence challenged their notions and gave them a basis for their faith. And eventually they all came to a place of understanding not only the resurrection, but its far-reaching implications that Jesus was God eternal who came and gave his life for us as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Not as just the human being, but as the God-man, which is what made his sacrifice enough, sufficient, to cover our sin and to give us eternal life. Uh, so that's the, the, that's the process of faith. Let me look real quickly at the pursuit of faith. So what do we do with this information? Um, let's go back to our saying. Verse 29, this, this question that Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. Uh, what does Jesus mean by these words? Is he really saying here that our faith should not be based on any evidence or proof? Right, that we should chuck reason and logic and our skeptical attitude and we should just take this leap of faith in the dark. Um, or is he saying no? Um, is he saying something different? Right? Um, if, if, if I'm true, if I'm correct, if, if faith requires some evidence or proof, how is that going to work for us? Because, you know, I prayed in my bedroom. I didn't even want the resurrected physical bodily Jesus. I just I would have been happy for the ghost, right? 
ghost would have been fine with me. A vision, I don't, you know, uh, a little light shining on the wall would have been enough for me, right? How does this work for us if we don't get the bodily Jesus showing up when we're questioning the reality of it all? Well, it is not that there is no evidence, but it is different evidence. And what Jesus is saying here simply is this, that um, he is no longer going to be visibly present. Right? He, he saw coming the ascension when he would leave earth permanently well, until the second coming. And that for the, the vast majority of Christians... They are going to have to come to faith without the privilege of that hands-on, face-to-face encounter with the resurrected body of Jesus. Um, That's us. Uh, He is not saying that evidence is not necessary. Um, In fact, in all that's written in the account, Jesus, I think, would say the exact opposite. No, that you need evidence. But, But the thing is, the evidence for us comes through the witness of those who were firsthand Uh, those who experienced it firsthand, right? Our evidence comes through guys like Thomas and Peter and John. In fact, John himself is very careful that we do not make this conclusion that our faith is without substance. And the very next thing thing he writes in verse 30, notice what he writes in verse 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John follows up this account of the resurrection with his purpose for the book. So I wrote this book for the very simple reason that I could lay out the evidence, the signs, the clear evidence of why you should believe Jesus is is the Son of God, living God who came and gave his life for us. The Word of God become flesh, so that you may believe. Uh, In fact, in verse 30, unfortunately, a lot of translations translate the very first word now. Really, it should be translated therefore. Okay, men and un, therefore. Uh, And it connects these verses together. It's not just loose connection. It's a direct connection. You could, you could translate it this way. Therefore, since Jesus is God who rose from the dead, I have written about these signs so that you might believe. Right? He says, yes, you need evidence of your faith. You need substance. You need to know the facts. And that's why I've written this book. Jesus does not, does not make personal appearances anymore. <laughs> uh, sadly. He will one day, but for now, he is not making personal appearances, but it's not necessary. There is enough evidence left behind that we can dig out all the proof and evidence we need to have a solid, firm faith in the truth and reality of the gospel. Um, and, and, and that witness is in Scripture. Right? All that's recorded in the Bible, in the gospels in the Gospel of John, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all this recorded in Scripture. Uh, the Word is enough for those who are willing to examine the evidence. Now again, does that mean everybody's going to look at the Bible and get saved? No, sadly. Because a lot of people will reject the evidence that's there. That they will listen to other voices. 
But for those who search and who honestly will examine the evidence of Scripture, it will be overwhelming. Right? It is overwhelming evidence. Um, in fact, Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The evidence. Right? Faith comes by hearing the evidence, the witness of those who saw and lived through, uh, lived with Jesus. So faith comes by hearing. How does hearing come? Hearing comes by the word of Christ. And all that's written down in the Gospels and Scripture. If you want to have true faith in Jesus, a deep faith in Jesus, an unshakable faith in Jesus, then you need to be examining the Scriptures. John confirms it when he says he's carefully recorded many of these signs and wonders as evidence to support the claims that Jesus is the Son of God so that you might believe. The evidence and the witness of Scripture is enough. So last thing, I titled this message Resurrection Faith. Uh, What do I mean by resurrection faith? And do you have it? Uh, What I mean by it is simply this, that um, the resurrection is the faith challenge that every person needs to really come to true saving faith. Uh, And that's why coming to grips with the the resurrection as a fact is really the the beginning of every person's faith journey. Uh, you, you, You cannot be saved by believing just simply in the death of Jesus on the cross. And unfortunately, we often teach this, and it's because there is some truth in it. Um, the, the crucifixion is essential and makes our salvation possible. But Jesus' death on the cross is what makes it possible for God to justly forgive us. You cannot be saved without Jesus' death. It's, it's essential. But the resurrection is the essential event that makes faith in his salvation possible. Um, why? Because the, the reality is anybody could die. Right? Um, believing that Jesus died is not enough to save you because anybody can die. Right? In fact, all of us will. It takes no special skill to do that, actually. It's inescapable. Right? Believing that Jesus died doesn't mean anything if that's all you believe. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, though, makes everything about him unique and extraordinary. Right? That puts him in a different class. It shows us that Jesus was the eternal God, the eternal God who died in your place, who left heaven and came to earth and took human flesh and blood and allowed himself to be nailed to the cross as your sacrifice for sin to pour out on himself the punishment you and I deserved. Right? The resurrection is what, what makes that certain if you believe it. It proves that he is the living God just as he claimed. So death makes salvation possible, but his resurrection is what makes faith possible. As we wrestle with that reality and come to consider the evidence and say, yes, I believe that Jesus was God because he rose again. Uh, and of course, the promise and hope for us all is that it's our future. 
Jesus rose as, as the first fruits of the resurrection. Uh, John says that by believing, you will have life in his name. And that doesn't mean just life here and now, but it means eternal life, unending life, resurrection life. In the name of Jesus. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.